Part 1 of Chapter 2 of They Who Knock at Our Gates, A Complete Gospel of Immigration by Mary Anton. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Zach Katzstein. Chapter 2 Judges in the Gate Judges and officers, shalt thou make thee in all thy gates, and they shall judge the people with just judgment. Deuteronomy chapter 16, verse 18. There is nothing so potent in a public debate as the picturesque catchwords in which leaders of thought sum up their convictions. Logic makes fewer converts in a year than a taking phrase makes in a week. For catchwords are the popular substitute for logic, and the man in the street is reduced to silence by a good round phrase of the kind that sticks. Two classes of citizens are especially prone to fall under the tyranny of phrases. Those whose horizon, through no fault of their own, is limited by the rim of an empty dinner pail, and those whose view of the universe is obstructed by the kitchen middens of too many dinners. There is no clear thinking on an empty stomach, and equally muddled are the thoughts of the overfull. When I hear of a public measure that is largely supported by these two classes of citizens, I know at once that the measure appeals to human prejudices rather than to divine reason. Thus, I became suspicious of the restrictionist movement when I realized it was in greatest favor among the thoughtless poor and the thoughtless rich. I am well aware that the high priests of the cult include some of the most conscientious thinkers that ever helped to make history, and their earnestness is attested by a considerable body of doctrine, in support of which they quote statistics and special studies and scientific investigations. But I notice that the rank and file of restrictionists do not know as much as the titles of these documents. They have not followed the argument at all. They have only caught the catchwords of restrictionism. And these catchwords are all the sort that appeal to the mean spots in human nature. The distrust of the stranger the jealousy of possession, the cowardice of the stomach. Nothing else is expressed by such phrases as the scum of Europe, the exploitation of America's wealth, or taking the bread from the mouth of the American working man. Even the least venomous formula of restrictionism, immigration isn't what it used to be, raises such a familiar echo of foolish human nature that I am bound to challenge its veracity. Does not every generation cry that the weather isn't what it used to be? Children are not what they used to be. Society is not what it used to be. The good old times and the old immigration may be twin illusions of limited human vision. If it is true that immigration is not what it used to be, the fact will appear from a detailed comparison of the old and the new immigration. But which of the immigrant stocks of the good old times shall be taken as a standard? Woman's wisdom urges me to go right back to the original pattern, just as I would do if I went to the shops to match samples. And the original pattern was brought to this country in the year 1620. Surely, 
Comparison with the Mayflower stock is the most searching test of the quality of our immigration that anyone could propose. The predominant virtue of the pilgrims was idealism. The things of the spirit were more important to them than the things of the flesh. May we say the like of our present immigrants? Of a very many of them, yes. A thousand times yes. Of the 8,213,000 foreigners landed between the years 1899 and 1909, 990,000 were of that race which for 19 centuries has sacrificed its flesh in service of the spirit. It takes a hundred times as much steadfastness and endurance for a Russian Jew of today to remain a Jew as it took for an English Protestant in the 17th century to defy the established church. Those who think that with the Spanish Inquisition, Jewish martyrdom came to an end are asked to remember that the Kishinev affair is only eight years behind us and that Bielostok has been heard from since Kishinev and Mohilev since Bielostok. And more terrible than the recurrent pogrom, which hacks and burns and tortures a few hundred now and then, is the continuous bloodless martyrdom of the six million Jews in Russia through the operation of the anti-Semitic laws of that country. Thirty minutes spent in looking over a summary of these laws, recently compiled by an English historian, will convince any reader with a spark of imagination that every Russian Jewish immigrant today is a fugitive from religious persecution, even as were the English immigrants of 1620. But while nobody questions the idealism of the Jew in religion, the world has been very slow to credit him with any degree of civic devotion. The world did not stop to think that a man has to have a country before he can prove himself a good citizen. But happily, in recent times he has been put to the test of civic opportunity, notably in America with the result that he was found to possess a fair share of the civic virtues, from the generosity displayed in the town meeting, when citizens vote away their substance to support public causes, to the brute heroism of the battlefield where mangled flesh gives proof of valiant spirit. And what the Jews of West European stock proved in the American wars for freedom, the Jews of Eastern European stock have proved more recently by their forwardness in the Russian Revolution of 1905. No group of people, of all the heterogeneous mass that constitutes the Russian nation, were half so prominent as the Jews in that abortive attempt at freedom. Witness the police records of the revolutionary period, which show that 75 out of every 100 political offenders were Jews in districts where the population was 15 parts Jewish and 85 parts Gentile. When I visited my native town in the Pale several years after the revolution, it was hard to find, among the young men and women I talked with, one in a dozen who had not shared in the dangers of 1905. If we really want to know how heartily the Jews played their part in the revolution, we need only ask the Russian government 
why the anti-Semitic laws have been so vengefully enforced since a certain crimson year within the present decade. And the whole significance of these things in the present study lies in the fact that precisely that spirit which prompts to rebellion in despotic Russia rallies in free America to the support of existing institutions. If it was a merit in 1620 to flee from religious persecution, and in 1776 to fight against political oppression, then many of the Russian refugees today are a little ahead of the Mayflower troop because they have, in their own lifetime, sustained the double ordeal of fight and flight, with all their attendant risks and shocks. To obtain a nice balance between the relative merits of these two groups of rebels, we remind ourselves that, for sheer adventurousness, Migration to America today is not to be mentioned on the same page with the magnificent exploit of 1620. And we reflect that the moral glory of the revolution of 1776 is infinitely greater than that of any subsequent revolt, because that too was a pathfinding adventure with no compass but faith and no chart but philosophical invention. On the other hand, it is plain that the Russian revolutionists moved against greater odds than the American colonists had to face. The Russians had to plot in secret, assemble in the dark, and strike with bare fists, all of this under the very nose of the Tsar with the benighted condition of the Russian masses hanging like a cloud over their enterprise. The colonists were able to lay the train of revolution in the most public manner. They had the local government in their hands, a considerable militia obedient to their own captains, and the advantage of distance from the enemy's resources, with a populace advanced in civic experience promising to support the leaders. And what a test of heroism was that which the harsh nature of the Russian government afforded. The American rebels risked their charters and their property for some of them, dungeons waited, and for the leaders dangled a rope, no doubt. But confiscation is not so bitter as Siberian exile, and a halter is less painful than the barbed whip of the Cossacks. The Minutemen at Concord Bridge defied a bully. The rioters in St. Petersburg challenged a tiger, and first of all, to be thrust into the cage would be the rebels of Jewish faith. And nobody knew that better than the Jews themselves. The superior zeal and high degree of self-sacrifice displayed by the Jewish revolutionists would naturally be explained by the fact that, of all the peoples held in chains by the Russian government, the Jews are the ones who have suffered the cruelest oppression. But there is proof proof that will go down with the stream of history, that the Jewish participants in the Russian Revolution of 1905 were actuated by the highest patriotism, their peculiar grievances being forgotten in the grievances of the nation as a whole. The sinking of the Jewish question in the national question was an important article of the revolutionary propaganda among the Jews. So much so that when a prominent Jewish leader attempted to demonstrate, 
on philosophical grounds that that was a false position to take, he was hotly repudiated, although up to that time he had stood high in the council of the leaders. If we find such a high degree of civic responsiveness in what we have been trained to think the most unlikely quarter, shall we not look hopefully in other corners of our world of immigrants? If the spirit of Jewish freedom leaps from the graves of Bar Kokhla to the hovels of the Russian ghetto, half across the world and half the civilized era, shall we not look for similar prodigies among the more recent graves of Kashushko and Garibaldi? If the hook-nosed tailor can turn hero on occasion, why not the grinning organ grinder and the surly miner and the husky lumberjack? We experienced a shock of surprise a little while ago when troops of our Greek immigrants deserted the boot-blacking parlors and fruit stands and tumbled aboard anything that happened to sail for the Mediterranean in their eagerness. It's hard to bring it out in connection with a Dago boot black, in their eagerness to strike a blow for their country in her need. But that's the worst of calling names. It deceives those who do so. The little boot blacks would not have fooled us as they did if we had not recklessly summed up the Greek character in a contemptuous epithet. It is quite proper for street urchins to invent nicknames for everybody. That is what street urchins are for. But let us not hand down the judgment of the gutter where the judgment of the Senate is called for. Between Leonidas at the pass and Little Metro under the saloon window fawning for our nickels is indeed a dismal gap. And yet Metro, when occasion demanded, reached out his grimy hand and touched the tunic of the Spartan hero. From these unexpected exploits of the craven Jew and the degenerate Greek, it would seem as if the different elements of the despised new immigration only await a spectacular opportunity to prove themselves equal to the old in civic valor. But... If contemporary history fails to provide a war or revolution for each of our foreign nationalities, we are still not without the means of gauging the idealistic capacity of the aliens. Next after liberty, the Puritans loved education. And today, if you examine the registers of the schools and colleges they founded, you will find the names of recent immigrants thickly sprinkled from A to Z, and topping the honor ranks nine times out of ten. All readers of newspapers know the bare facts. Each commencement season, the prize winners are announced in a string of unpronounceable foreign names, and every school teacher in the immigrant section of the larger cities has a collection of picturesque anecdotes to contribute, of heroic sacrifices for the sake of a little reading and writing of young girls stitching away their youth to keep their brother in college, of whole families cheerfully starving together to save one gifted child from the factory. Go from the public school to the public library, from the library to the social settlement. You will carry away the same story in a hundred different forms. 
The good people behind the desks in these public places are fond of repeating that they can hardly keep up with the intellectual demands of their immigrant neighbors. In the experience of the librarians, it is the various commonplace that the classics have the greatest circulation in the immigrant quarters of the city. And the most touching proof of reverence for learning often comes from the illiterate among the aliens. On the east side of New York, teacher is a being adored, said a bedraggled Jewish mother to her little boy who had affronted his teacher. Don't you know that teachers is holy? Perhaps these are the things the teachers have in mind when they speak with a tremor of the immense reward of work in the public schools. That way of speaking is the fashion among workers of all sorts in the public institutions where foreigners attend in numbers. Get a group of settlement people swapping anecdotes about their immigrant neighbors, and there is apt to develop an epidemic of moist eyes. Out of the fullness of their knowledge, these social missionaries pay the tribute of respect and affection to the strangers among whom they toil. For they know them, as we know our brothers and sisters, from living and working and rejoicing and sorrowing together. The testimony of everyday experience is borne out by the sudden revelations of catastrophic circumstances, as reported by a librarian from Dayton, Ohio. In Dayton, they had branch libraries located in different parts of the city, not in separate library buildings, but in convenient shops or dwelling houses, where they were left in the care of some responsible person in the neighborhood. After the recent flood, when the panic was over and the people began to dig for their belongings underneath the accumulated slime and wreckage, the librarian tried to collect at the central library whatever was recovered of the scattered collection. Crumpled, mutilated, slimy with the filth of the disemboweled city, the books came back. All but one collection, which had been housed in the midst of the Hungarian quarter. These came back, neatly packed, scraped clean of mud, their leaves smoothed, dried, as presentable as loving care could make them. If that was not a manifestation of pure idealism, then is human conduct void of symbolism and our public squares are cumbered in vain with monuments erected in commemoration of human deeds. But we read men's souls in their actions, and we know that they who flock to the schools are the spiritual kindred of those who founded them. They who cherish a book are passing along the torch kindled by him who wrote it. They pay the highest tribute to an inventor who showed the most eagerness to adopt his invention. The great New England invention of compulsory education is more eagerly appropriated by the majority of our immigrants than by Native Americans of the corresponding level. That is what the schoolteachers say. And I suppose they know. They also say, they and all public educators in chorus, that while one foreign nationality excels in the love of letters, another excels in the love of music, and a third in the love of science, 
and all of them together constitute an army whose feet keep time with the noble rhythms of culture. Let a New Yorker on Friday night watch the crowd pushing out of a concert hall after one of Isai's recitals, and on Saturday afternoon, let him take the subway uptown and get out where the crowd gets out and buy a ticket for the baseball game. If he can keep cool enough for a little study, let him compare the distorted faces in the bleachers with the shining faces of the crowd of the night before, and let him say which crowd responded to the nobler inspiration, and then let him declare in which group the foreigners outnumbered the Americans. The American devotion to sport is no reproach to the descendants of the Puritans, since it can be demonstrated from various angles that the baseball diamond may supplement the schoolroom and the pulpit in the training of American citizens. Indeed, it is not difficult to accept that interpretation of the national sport which reduces a good game of baseball to an epitome of all that is best in the lives of the best Americans. At the same time, we need to remember that the love of art is more generally accepted as a mark of grace than the love of sport. Thus, when we speak of the glory of old Athens, we have in mind not the Olympian games, noble as they were, but the poets and sculptors and philosophers who uttered her thoughts. The original of the Discobolus must have been a winner, I can imagine Athenian mothers lifting up their beautiful bear babies to see the hero over the heads of the throng. But who can tell me his name today? Meanwhile, the name of Myron has been guarded as a talisman of civilization. We shall not look in the sporting columns, then, for the names of contemporary Americans who are likely to secure us a place of honor on the scrolls of history. We look under the current book reviews, in theater programs, in the announcements of art galleries. As a byproduct of such a search, we announce the discovery that the prize fighters seem to be near cousins of certain Americans of turbulent notoriety in politics, themselves derived from one of the approved immigrant stocks of the old dispensation. Meanwhile, the singer and painter and writer folk very often hail from those parts of Europe at present labeled as undesirable, as a source of immigration. Nay, is it not a good joke on the restrictionists that an American singer who aspires to be a prima donna must trick herself out with a name borrowed from the steerage lists of recent arrivals at Ellis Island? If it is the scum of Europe, that we are getting in our present immigration, it seems to be a scum rich in pearls. Pearl fishing, of course, is accompanied by labor and danger and expense, but it is reckoned a paying industry, or practical men would not invest their capital in it. The brunt of the business falls on the divers, however. Have we divers willing to go down into our human sea and risk an encounter with sharks and grope in the ooze at the bottom? We have our school teachers and librarians and social missionaries whose zest for their work should shame us out of counting the cost of our human fishery. As to the accumulations of empty shells, 
We are told that in the pearl fisheries of South America, one oyster in a thousand yields a pearl, and yet the industry goes on. The lesson of the oyster bank goes further still. We know that the 999 empty shells have a lining, at least, of mother-of-pearl. We are thus encouraged to look for the generic opalescence of humanity in the undistinguished mass of our immigrants. What do the aliens show of the specific traits of manhood that go to the making of good citizens? Immersed in the tide of American life, do their spiritual secretions give off that fine luster of manhood that distinguished the noble pilgrims of the first immigration? The genius of the few is obvious. The group virtue of the mass on exalted occasions such as popular uprising has been sufficiently demonstrated. What we want to know now is whether the ordinary immigrant under ordinary circumstances comes anywhere near the type we have taken as a model. There can be no effective comparison between the makers of history of a most romantic epoch and the vendors of bananas on our own thrice commonplace streets. But the pilgrims were not always engaged in signing momentous compacts or in effecting a historic landing. In a secondary capacity, they were immigrants. Strangers come to establish themselves in a strange land. And as such, they may profitably be used as a model by which to measure other immigrants. The historic merit of their enterprise aside, the virtue of the Pilgrim Fathers was that they came not to despoil, but to build. That they resolutely turned their backs on conditions of life that galled them and set out to make their own conditions in a strange and untried world at great hazard to life and limb and fortune. That they asked no favors of God, but paid in advance for his miracles by hewing and digging and plowing and fighting against odds. That they respected humankind, believed in themselves, and pushed the business of the moment as if the universe hung on the result. The average immigrant of today, like the immigrant of 1620, comes to build to build a civilized home under a civilized government, which diminishes the amount of barbarity in the world. He too, like that earlier newcomer, has rebelled against the conditions of his life and adventured halfway across the world in search of more acceptable conditions. Facing exile and uncertainty and the terrors of the untried, he also pays as he goes along, and in very much the same coin as did the pilgrims, awaiting God's miracle of human happiness in the grisly darkness of the mine, in the fierce glare of the prairie ranch, in the shriveling heat of the coke ovens, beside roaring cotton gins, beside blinding silk looms, in stifling tailor shops, in nerve-wracking engine rooms, in all those places were the assurance and pride of the state come to rest upon the courage and patience of the individual citizen. There is enough peril left in the adventure of immigration to mark him who undertakes it as a man of some daring and resource. 
Has civilization smoothed the sea? Or have not steamships been known to founder as well as sailing vessels? Does not the modern immigrant also venture among strangers, who know not his ways, nor speak his tongue, nor worship his god? If his landing is not threatened by savages in ambush, he has to run the gauntlet of exacting laws that serve not his immediate interests. The early New England farmer used to carry his rifle with him in the fields to be ready for the prowling Indians. And the gutter merchant of New York today is obliged to carry about the whole armory of his wit to avert the tomahawk of competition. No less cruel than Indian chiefs to their white captives is the greedy industrial boss to the laborers whom poverty puts at his mercy. And how could you better match the wolves and foxes that prowled about the forest clearings of our ancestors than by the pack of sharpers and misinformers who infest the immigrant quarters of our cities? Measured by the exertions necessary to overcome them, the difficulties that beset the modern immigrant are no less formidable than those which the pilgrims had to face. There has never been a time where it has been more difficult to get something for nothing than it is today. But the unromantic setting of modern enterprise leads us to underestimate the moral qualities that make success possible today. Undoubtedly, the pioneer with an axe over his shoulder is a more picturesque figure than the clerk with a pencil behind his ear. But we who have stood up against the shocks of modern life should know better than to confuse the picturesque with the heroic. Do we not know that it takes a man to beat circumstances, today as in the days of the pioneers? And manliness is always the same mixture of courage, self-reliance, perseverance, and faith. Inventions have multiplied since the days of the pilgrims, but which of our mechanical devices takes the place of the old-fashioned quality of determination where obstacles are to be overcome? The New England wilderness retreated not before the axe, but before the diligence of the men who wielded the axe. And diligence, it is which today transmutes the city's refuse into a loaf for the rag picker's children. Resourcefulness, the ability to adjust the means to the end, enters equally in the subtle enterprises of the businessman and in the hardy exploits of the settler. And it takes as much patience to wait for returns on a penny investment of capital as it does to watch the sprouting of an acre of corn. Hardiness and muscle and physical courage were the 17th century manifestations of the same moral qualities which today are expressed as intensity and nerve and commercial daring. Our country being in part cultivated, in part savage, we need citizens with the endowment of the 20th century and citizens with the pioneer endowment. The new immigration, however interpreted, consists, in the main, of these two types. Whether we get these elements in the proportion best suited to our needs is another question to be answered in its place. At this point, it is only necessary to admit that the immigrant possesses an abundance of the homely virtues 
of the useful citizen in times of peace. End of part one of chapter two.